people look back on and say, why did they live in a world that was so unfair, where the country that you were born in had such a difference, made such a difference to your prospects of living a, a long and healthy life? That's, I think, something people will puzzle about in future future generations. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 62 of the Business for Good podcast. Typically in these interviews, we showcase entrepreneurs and business titans alike who are using the power of commerce to try to solve serious social problems. Occasionally, we've had on nonprofit leaders. In fact, our episode with Isha Datar from New Harvest was a particularly popular one, and a lot of people also enjoyed the interview with Lori Deerwester from Goodwill, too. And in this episode, we've again got a very special guest who also is not a grinding entrepreneur. But this guest is someone who's inspired many mission-oriented entrepreneurs, myself included, along with millions of others trying to do good in the world because of him. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it is hard to think of many people on the planet who've led a more impactful life than this episode's guest. Peter Singer is an author and ethicist and has routinely been called the most influential philosopher alive. He's widely credited with kickstarting the modern animal protection movement with his 1975 mega bestseller, Animal Liberation, and with popularizing what's now called the effective altruism movement through his early writings on poverty and more recently with his 2009 book called The Life You Can Save. Many of the business leaders we feature on this show, especially those in the animal-free protein space, are motivated by philosophical underpinnings to their work that are likely related to or even directly stemming from Peter Singer's writings. I first met Peter in 1996 when he signed a copy of Animal Liberation I'd read a few years earlier and had a transformative impact on me. In fact, my wife Tony jokes that while I don't care about most material possessions, that book that Peter signed to me 25 years ago is one of the few possessions I've actually kept throughout my life and might even risk my wife to try to save in a fire. She one time even asked me which I'd save first in a fire, that singer-signed book or our framed marriage license. For the sake of domestic harmony, I won't reveal my answer except to say that, well, one of those two items is replaceable. Over the years, I've had the honor of getting to work with Peter a number of times, including jointly publishing two op-eds together in 2006 and in 2012, respectively, about the cage confinement of animals on factory farms. I've organized talks he's given, I've spoken at events he's organized, and more. He was also kind and, and helpful in editing my book, Queen Meat. In short, suffice it to say, I am a big fan of his. In this interview, Peter does not disappoint, nor does he shy away from tough subjects. We discuss a wide range of topics, including his views on the role that technology and entrepreneurship play in helping animals, along with the role that charities play, too. We get into whether he has any regrets over publicly taking certain views in his 50-year career. We discuss whether he thinks animals are better off today than when he first wrote Animal Liberation in 1975. Peter offers his views on the ethics of eating oysters, on adopting children versus procreating, on colonizing other planets, and more. And now that he's in his mid-70s, he also talks about what he hopes his obituaries will say, which hopefully will not be written for a long time. Whether you agree with Peter on a particular issue or not, there's no doubt you will come away from this interview with a great appreciation for his commitment to doing the most good he can do in the world. I now bring you author, philosopher, philanthropist, and as you'll soon hear, alt-protein food tech investor, Peter Singer. Peter, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you. 
Uh, it's really great to be back with you. I, I saw that you said that um, you and Renata just celebrated 50 years of vegetarianism. You and your wife just celebrated 50 years of vegetarianism. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yes, it is quite a long period, actually. And, you know, when I remembered the date when we had become vegetarian, I thought, wow, we, sh we should do something about that. So we did have a few friend friends over to a vegetarian meal. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I wrote a piece about it for, um, well, actually, I tweeted about it. And then the main Melbourne newspaper, The Age, sort of saw the tweet and asked me to write something for them. So nice. I've written about it as well. And you had friends over during the pandemic to celebrate this, huh? Uh, yes, this was a, a period when uh, we were not in, in lockdown uh, okay. and we were able to have up to 15 friends in our home, I think. So we just sort of scraped under that number. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that's cool. Well, I, I guess that leaves me, if this was 50 years ago, I, I think you were in your early 20s when you became vegetarian. Is that right? That's right. I was 24. All right. All right. So you're now 74 then and you're having people over. Please tell me, have you been vaccinated yet? Uh, no, almost. I, look, I, I need to say for your listeners, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Um, we have had, still, ha still have not had uh, 1,000 deaths mm -hmm. for the entire pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so and and our population is about the 15 15th of the United States. So by comparison, uh, it would be like the United States having so far had 15,000 deaths instead of half a million. Mm -hmm. um, why? And, why? Why do you think that is? Why is that, why? Why do we see? other uh, former British colonies like uh, South Africa and the US and Britain, uh, excuse me, and Britain, which was not a colony, but was the colonizer. Why do they have such higher higher rates of COVID than Australia? It's, it's not clear. I mean, I think the fact that we're an island and we're able to cut off um, incoming travelers uh, is, has certainly been part of it. And, and that's still the case. Anybody who wants to come to Australia has to quarantine for two weeks in a government-run hotel or government secured hotel uh, at their own expense. So um, we don't get uh, tourists coming into the country. Mm -hmm. uh, um, also, the governments uh, have treated this in a non-partisan way. Uh, for example, here in Victoria, we have a state labor government, uh, but federally Australia has a conservative government, um, but they've been working well together. They've not been sniping and criticizing each other for handling it in different ways. Uh, and that's probably because they're both following the science. Um, mm -hmm. They're both listening to their chief medical officers or their chief scientists um, on what's the best thing to do. What a novel concept. Have the politicians listening to the scientists? That sounds pretty interesting. I'll have to, have to look into that and see, see how that's possible. Um, but I, I will say, Peter, you know, even if it's a low risk, you are a, a highly valuable person. And I just say, if you get a chance to get the vaccine, you know, your life is probably only about 75% over. You got another quarter century, hopefully left in you. So uh, I, I really would encourage you to think about getting this vaccine if you get a chance. Oh, I, I, I will get the vaccine as soon as it's my turn. But um, we've only recently started vaccinating. And obviously, the uh, quarantine hotel workers and the frontline health workers are getting it at this stage. Um, when they've done them, they'll move on to people related to their age group. And yes, I will get one when my turn comes. Okay, good. Well, I, I can't wait to see the photo on, on Twitter of you getting vaccinated. That'll make, that'll make me sleep easier at night. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you know, one time you told me that you have written more than 40 books, but 
that you think Animal Liberation has sold more copies than the other 40 combined. So, you know, of course, in more recent times, you become also well known for your book, The Life You Can Save, and all of your advocacy for effective altruism and your support for giving more money to charities to help the global poor. But for folks who may be less familiar with your body of work, maybe they've heard of Animal Liberation, maybe they know a little bit about effective altruism. Is there any other work of yours aside from those two books that you consider perhaps really at the top of the list of books that you hope people will read of yours? Uh, well, certainly those two, Animal Liberation and The Life You Can Save, I would put it at the very top. Um, I wrote a, a follow-up book on effective altruism called The Most Good You Can Do. Um, I hope some of your listeners will look at that. Um, I have a uh, book that's really aimed for use in classroom use called Practical Ethics, which uh, gives the, a range of my views on uh, a whole lot of different ethical issues, including the treatment of animals and global poverty, but a lot of others as well, climate change, for example, and bioethical issues like end-of-life decisions. Um, that's probably the second best-selling book of mine. It's gone through three editions mm. since 1979. It's never been out of print since, since then. Um, so it probably would have sold a couple of hundred thousand, um, but uh, that's still not nearly as much as Animal Liberation. Sure. Uh, and, and while we're talking about my books, I'm going to put in a plug for the, the next one, which will be out soon after this podcast, which actually I have to say is not a book that I've written. Um, it's a book that I've edited. Uh, and I'm curious, actually, Paul, whether you've heard of this. Um, it's a book called The Golden Ass by a writer called Apuleius. Have, have you ever heard of that? It's not ringing a bell, but I'm eager to hear more. Good. Um, I think it that will be most people's reaction. They will say, what is this? Um, it's actually a, a Roman novel, a, a novel written in Latin in the second century AD, um, or I should say uh, Christian era, as we say nowadays. Um, and you know, most people don't know that it existed. If you ask them what was the first novel, they might say Gulliver's Travels, or if they know about the tale of Genji, the Japanese 13th century novel, they might say that. But this is, you know, hundreds of years earlier, um, and it's a rollicking good tale. And the, the reason that I actually am interested in it is it's a tale told from the point of view of a donkey. Um, and so we get a lot of information about how donkeys were treated in Roman times. Um, you won't be surprised to learn that typically they're not treated very well. Um, but, but there's a great deal of empathy with, with the donkey coming through this. And apart from that, it's actually good fun. There's lots of adventures. It's kind of like, you know, uh, adventure genre sort of novels. Um, uh, the donkey nearly dies on various occasions. Um, there's some sex in it. Uh, there's a whole range of, you know, f amusing things. So I think it ought to be better known. Um, I hope it will be widely read when it comes out. Um, it's coming out with Norton in uh, April. Uh, and I hope it will also encourage more people to think about things from an animal's point of view. Wow, that's really cool. I, I look forward to reading that. It reminds me a little bit um, of, I don't know if you're familiar with the story in the book of Numbers in the Bible about the uh, Balaam's donkey. Have you, are you familiar oh, yeah. with that? Right. Yeah, yes. right, where, yeah. where the, the angel uh, comes down and basically spares this donkey from being abused by Balaam and, and strikes down Balaam for not uh, being as, as pious as his donkey is, apparently. Um, but yeah, well, pretty interesting. I, I, I have uh, regularly commented that while donkeys may not be the most numerous of the animals who humanity is exploiting, they are really among the most abused in terms of their, their pitiful lot in life. And um, it's interesting that that has been the case for a long time. I'm glad your next book is going to be on that topic. I can't wait to read it. 
Yeah, it's it's as I say, I, I just edited it. I pruned away a lot of things that were digressions that I think <laughs> maybe is one of the reasons why people didn't find it so entertaining to read. But but the core story, <laughs> I think, great well, story. I- uh, I can attest that you're a great editor, in fact, because when I asked you if you would write a blurb for my book, Clean Meat, you not only were kind in offering a blurb, which is on the back cover of the book, but you actually read the whole book, edited it, and gave me not only macro suggestions, but also told me about expressions that I used too often, words that were missing in certain paragraphs. Uh, it was really uh, an intense edit that you provided. I was shocked that you were doing that, but I was grateful for it. So uh, I can only imagine if you're editing a book on which your name is going to be on the front cover, uh, how much better it would be. So uh, word of the wise, Peter Singer, not only a good author, but also a good editor. Um, yeah, you know, I, don't send me your manuscripts, everybody. Add this, please. Like <laughs> yeah, he's willing, to, he's willing to do it for everybody. Um, no, you know, actually, you know, speaking of novels, it was pretty interesting. I was reading um, The Three Body Problem, um, which is a, a very popular Chinese novel, though, of course, I was reading it in English. Right. Sadly, yeah. I can't read Mandarin. But one of the main characters has animal liberation on his shelf. It was pretty uh, fascinating to see how the book has penetrated into even Chinese sci-fi literature of the 21st century. And it was uh, actually, you know, pretty substantial portion of the book was about that topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. And I was also intrigued that, uh, that this, this was apparently a really big seller in China um, and was you know, quite well known. So it's helped to make animal liberation uh, <laughs> yes. known in China as well. And there is yeah. a Chinese translation of, of animal liberation, by the way, that's, that's doing okay too. Oh, very cool. Well, that's great. Uh, That's really great. Um, Well, so speaking of animal liberation, Peter, you've commented that when you wrote it, the first edition in 1975, that you thought that just telling people about what happens to animals and making the case for why animals um, should matter and why we should take their interests seriously, that that would be sufficient to change people's behavior. You know, there's a lot of animal advocates, including myself in the past, who have operated under this assumption, only to be really disabused of that fantasy when we've seen meat consumption just rise and rise. So, you know, you fast forward 45 years since you first wrote the book to today, and, you know, I don't want to be a downer, but your wishes have not exactly come true. You know, meat consumption has never been higher. The number of animals we're raising for food has never been higher. Why do you think that is? Uh, why do you think it is that awareness about factory farming ever being higher, and yet, again, we're raising more animals for food than ever before? Yeah, um, you're you're right. Uh, that is a downer, but we have to face the reality. Uh, of course, one of the reasons we're raising more animals than ever before is that there are countries that couldn't afford to eat a lot of meat. China is best example here. Um, that have become more prosperous, um, and that's a good thing in general. That countries become more prosperous, but it does have this downside when countries like China then people want to eat more meat, uh, the country produces a lot more meat, largely produced in factory farms. It's disastrous for the environment as well as for the animals. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a significant factor. Um, but it's true that even in Western countries, um, although there's a, been a big upsurge in plant-based foods and vegan eating, uh, but still the amount of meat eaten is very large and insofar as it's changed it's i guess people eat less beef and more chickens which is probably also again worse for animal suffering because there's just so many more chickens so um i have to recognize that uh, a large majority of the population out there um, at least specifically when it comes to their choice of what to eat are not really being influenced by the arguments that i and many others have been put putting forward uh, 
Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not. I agree with you that places like China and India, which have you know had a, a increase in the middle class, have seen much uh, really staggering increases in meat consumption. But you're right; like even in the U.S., per capita meat consumption, not just on a population basis, but per capita meat consumption, has never been higher than it is today. And arguably, there's never been more awareness about factory farming than there is today from animal welfare and environmental and public health. And it just seems like you know, what if moral arguments just aren't getting it done? Um, I mean, I, I guess I should ask you, like, do you think that animals today are better or worse off in general than when you wrote Animal Liberation? Like, in other words, do you think humans are inflicting more suffering or less suffering on animals today than in 1975? Well, again, if we ask that as a kind of per capita, where the capitas are the animals basis, I think I could say less, but because there are a lot more animals, the total amount uh, of animal suffering, I think, has clearly increased in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I say less on the per capita basis because some some regions have passed laws eliminating the very worst forms of factory farm confinement. I'm thinking here particularly of the European Union, uh, which has banned the standard battery cage, um, has banned individual uh, stalls for veal calves, has banned individual stalls for, for breeding sows, um, and a, a number of other you know, somewhat more minor but still significant reforms in animal handling. Um, I also think when it comes to the use of animals in research, uh, you know, if you look at the first edition of Animal Liberation, basically reporting experiments that were done in the 1960s and early 1970s, um, there are a lot of horrific experiments that to the best of my knowledge, are not being performed in the same way. I'm thinking about uh, experiments in learned helplessness where uh, animals were just shocked into a state of depression by continuous inescapable electric shock on the floor of their cage. Um, you know, that was done and published quite openly in the United States journals in the 60s. Um, and I don't think you'd get that you'd get anybody doing it quite that level. I'm not saying that people aren't doing horrible things to animals in labs. I think they still are. But I think the, the, the extreme level of inflicting suffering on animals in labs in countries like the United States, in the European Union, uh, in Australia where I am, um, UK, Canada, I think that's been reduced. Um, and that's, to me, it's a, certainly a significant benefit. It's certainly a significant benefit, I agree. And I, I also think that's probably right, at least as far as animals like uh, monkeys and dogs are concerned. As far as rats and mice are concerned, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's so uncommon to do learned helplessness experiments, but I'm not sure. I'm not it's, an expert. It still maybe. does happen. I'm, I'm actually yeah. currently looking at these things because I'm planning to bring out a new edition of Animal Liberation within the next year or two. And there are, unfortunately, um, I was disturbed to find still learned helplessness experiments going on. But I'd say you're right that they're not being done on dogs and they were being done on, on dogs and, and similar things on monkeys. Um, uh, and now they are more likely to use rats and mice who are also sentient beings, of course, and we ought to be concerned about their suffering just as we're concerned about the suffering of dogs and monkeys. Um, but I think probably it's still slightly less extreme. Um, mm -hmm. Stephen Pinker in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, talks about what he says is the worst, perhaps the worst thing he's ever done, which was uh, an experiment he did on rats when he was a graduate student um, at Harvard, I think he was. Um, uh, and essentially he says, I tortured a rat to death, you know, under the guidance of his professor. This wasn't something that he as a young sadist was doing. It was what, you know, was part of the 
science that he was doing for the PhD. But he says, he says anyway, um, that nobody would do that kind of research now. Um, I hope he's right about that. I certainly hope he's right. I was very moved when I read that myself. And uh, of course, it brings to mind like the Stanley Milgram experiments um, on on uh, obedience to authority and what people are willing to do when someone in an authoritative position instructs them to do it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with your overall assessment. I, I think in general that um, numerous types of abuses of animals have been uh, either outlawed or at least de facto phased out. Um, whereas the total number of animals uh, being used by humanity seems to have only skyrocketed. In fact, I remember when uh, we, you and I first met, uh, which was in 1996, uh, you gave a speech um, and uh, noted that there were 6 billion animals used for food in the United States back then, or at least land animals. And of course, today that number is you know, closer to 10 billion land animals um, and uh, untold num- numbers of aquatic animals as well. So it's, uh, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow. So uh, let's turn it to something a little bit more positive, though. And I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned some of the things that you that you have been encouraged by. Right. So the European Union banning certain types of extreme confinement. So just give a quick list, Peter, of what are the things that today are happening for animals that you think are the most exciting things for animals happening right now? Yeah, well, um, certainly that European Union breakthrough it was a few years ago, but that was very positive. And it was good to see uh, somewhat similar laws coming into some states in the United States, including you know California, clearly the most significant of them. Uh, and that came in through a citizens-initiated referendum. Um, uh, the, there have been a couple of them, but the, the, the first big breakthrough was in 2008, the year that Obama was elected. And it was significant that that referendum actually had a larger majority in California than Obama did, um, and of course, uh, you know, California was a uh, a lay down misere for for Obama. He didn't really have to campaign. It was obvious all along it was going to vote for him. But but the, uh, the referendum got even more support, which shows that when you put these issues about the confinement of factory farm animals to the American public um, in, in a vote, and they get some information about what's going on. Uh, they are at least prepared to vote against it, even if they're not prepared to stop buying it, uh, <laughs> or a majority of them are not. Um, and that has spread to, um, you're probably better informed on this than I am, but spread to a few other states in the US. Um, but there's a lot of other states, of course, that still don't have these these uh, laws. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, I, I devoted uh, much of my life to passing that law in, in 2008 as part of a group of many people who did that and, and moved to California for it. And, you know, what was so interesting is not only did more Californians vote to ban battery cages than voted for Obama, but that same election, a majority of Californians voted to ban gay marriage. Now, the courts eventually overturned that, but that just goes to show that there were a number of people who voted to ban gay marriage who also voted to ban battery cages. And uh, of course, uh, you know, I, I don't think that is good, but it is to show that what a widespread view throughout American society, the uh, better treatment of farm animals is, that it's not just something that people on one side of the political spectrum believed in. And in fact, when you look at the other states that have passed similar laws, many of them are outright red states. States like Arizona, where you know um, you Obama didn't win at all, and yet still uh, nearly two thirds of Arizona voters voted to ban gestation crates and veal crates. Um, and in swing states like Florida, you still had double-digit victories to ban 
uh, gestation crates. And so I think you're right. People act very differently as citizens than they do as consumers because these same people who are voting to ban inhumane factory farming systems are also at the same time purchasing the products of those very systems they're seeking to criminalize, uh, which is a good suggestion of why we have to codify social norms into public policies and not just leave it solely up to the market. So that's a a good few examples, Peter, of uh, some of the things that have happened that are most exciting. Are there other ones that you think are also particularly encouraging that you want to mention just to keep us on this good news train for a moment? Yeah, the other thing that I uh, really like um, that's happening is that people are being more concerned about fish now. Um, Mm. You know, even when I wrote Animal Liberation, I was a little hesitant to talk much about fish because I just thought it's so hard to get people to have any kind of empathy or concern for chickens, for example. Um, How are you going to get them to have concern for a fish who can't, you know, vocalize or cold-blooded and so on? but but animal organizations are starting to take up that issue. And it's it's such a vast issue. You know, you mentioned the 10 billion animals almost uh, killed for food in the United States and maybe worldwide it's, what, 70 billion or something like that. Sure. Um, but uh, but if you look at the numbers of fish, um, it's by estimates I've seen, it, it it's around a trillion or maybe over a trillion. Um, so a thousand, over a thousand billion. Um, and yet, the, you know, these are... I'm, sentient beings these are beings who can feel pain and overwhelmingly they're not there's no humane killing for them there's some you know little bit of humane killing in some uh, aquaculture but mostly not and and uh, and for wild caught fish there's pretty pretty much none so uh, that's that's also a, a vast amount of suffering that we're inflicting on on beings that we don't really need to so let me ask you peter uh, you know most people currently believe that pigs and chickens and cows are sentient and they feel pain and yet it it does little to deter them from eating them. What will that do then if people accept that fish feel pain? Well, you're right that I suppose the implication is that the majority of people will continue to eat them. Um, And that's, that's a problem. Um, I think that it's, it's good that organizations are making more people aware of that. I think there are some people who will stop eating them. Um, and maybe in the long term there will be a change of culture, um, a change of, of attitude to this. But uh, I know where you're leading to, um, and that is that we're much more likely to get some success if we provide people with something that tastes like fish to them, that uh, has the nutritional value of fish, um, but that doesn't come from a sentient being who suffered. Yeah, I mean, I think your supposition is correct. Um, It's not that I think it's uh, a bad thing to do to persuade people that fish can feel pain. Quite the opposite. I think it's really important to do it. And I too am grateful that more people are taking the interests of fish seriously uh, after having been ignored for so long. So uh, I I welcome it. I, I just think that we have to do not only what is right, but also what's both right and effective. And it, it doesn't seem to me that in that persuading people that an animal can suffer necessarily deters them from eating them. Um, I, I'm not really seeing that evidence considering what we were just saying. And I, I do wonder, so if you think about, you know, I'll give you an example. If you think about the founding of the American animal movement back in the late 1860s, 
These are folks who largely were concerned about the savage treatment of horses in the streets. They were concerned about how these carriage horses were being treated, and they campaigned for all types of reforms. They wanted uh, mandatory resting hours for them, watering stations for the horses. They wanted Sabbath days where the horses had to be rested so they couldn't work one day a week. And then Henry Ford comes along and essentially liberates horses, doing more for them than the animal advocates were even trying to do for them. They were simply trying to get them better working conditions, and Henry Ford rendered their exploitation obsolete. And the number of those types of stories is large. You know, the reason we stopped exploiting carrier pigeons isn't because people cared about the pigeons, it's because the telegraph was invented. The reason we stopped whaling wasn't because people cared about whales, it's because kerosene was invented. And the list goes on and on and on. We, you know, we stopped live plucking geese for their quills for their pens, not because people cared about geese, but because fountain pens were invented. Whereas it's very difficult to think of any category of animal exploitation that was ended primarily because of humane sentiment. Um, it's very easy to think of ways that technology has rendered categories of animal exploitation obsolete, but it's pretty hard to think of that many categories where humane sentiment was the driving factor. So what do you think about that? Like, do you, I mean, I know that you are encouraged by the, uh, ex the explosion of interest in plant-based meats and queen meat and so on. But as far as those examples go, like, uh, does that give you more reason to think that we ought to be focusing more on technological innovation to help advance the goals of animals? Uh, I'm very happy that technological innovation is, is happening and is, is making these things easier. Um, I think there's a bit more nuance in some of those issues than you mentioned. For example, whaling didn't stop with the replacement of whale oil for lamps, right? Australia was still whaling into the 1970s. We were still killing whales. And of course, the Japanese were killing whales to eat them and still are. Um, but certainly, the uh, Australian whaling was stopped by a combination of humane concern for the whales and environmental concern about endangered species and preserving the oceans. Uh, so I think there are, there, there are cases. And as I've said, <coughs> certainly um, the European Union changes were brought about by humane concerns. And uh, while they didn't stop people eating these animals, they reduced the suffering of those animals, and that's significant. And also, of course, the reason that these things didn't happen on their own without a humane movement is because the crueler methods turned out to be cheaper or they produced a cheaper product. So if you don't have them, the product becomes more expensive. Um, and therefore, I think you will find that it's easier for these alternative products to compete with them because obviously prices are going to be a consideration when people come to choose between uh, plant-based products or uh, cellular grown meat and meat from sentient beings. Right. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that, that price is, is going to be paramount here. And, and I, of course, also agree that there are plenty of examples where whaling persists to this day, but you know we also still have some horse-drawn carriage use. Some people still use quill pens and so on. So I, I think overall, though, it, you know the the reason why these industries were decimated, if not entirely eradicated yet, uh, largely was because of technological displacement. Now I agree that you did have humane sentiment uh, ending the uh, whaling issue in certain countries, but it's it's kind of like. You know, if you think about why the northern states in the United States were able to legislate against slavery, was the, the southern states were, you know, were w willing to go to war to preserve it, because the northern states had largely industrialized, and so they could. It was easier for them to ban slavery and accept the the moral. 
uh, high ground there because they were no longer so economically dependent on slavery in the same way that all the nations that were pressuring the laggard nations on whaling had abandoned it already, uh, largely for because they didn't need whales anymore for the most part. And I, I wonder then if it is the case that rather than people having a moral awakening and then seeking to legislate against these practices, if it may be that first reducing our reliance on the exploitative practice can help lead to an easier moral awakening because there's less cognitive dissonance in the first place. What do you think? I'm sure you're right about that. I'm sure that um, you're more likely to get the moral awakening if you reduce the dependence on the practice. Um, I will just mention one other example since you brought slavery in. Um, The movement to abolish the slave trade in in Britain um, in about in the very early 1800s, um, I don't think had that kind of economic advantage. In other words, there were still there were people making money out of the slave trade. Slaves mm-hmm. were still being sold in British colonies, um, Jamaica, for example. Uh, and it does seem to me from looking at that movement that it was a morally-based music movement which did stop um, a moral atrocity. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that the William Wilberforces of that era were particularly effective in making the moral argument and, and, uh, frankly, shaming people who were still, uh, complicit in in the, uh, in the slave trade. So I I agree. I'm not, I I don't seek to make a a case that moral arguments are totally inert. Uh, I, oh, my case really is that technological innovations can help to hasten the acceptance of them in a very rapid way. Uh, whereas it takes much longer. And so, and this isn't just for animals, but even if you think about, uh, you know, actually you mentioned Steven Pinker, uh, how he talks about how the invention of the washing machine uh, helped to liberate women and to give them much more free time to engage in other uh, pursuits that weren't just domestic. Or, you know, Susan B. Anthony actually commented that she thought that bicycling had done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world because the invention of the bicycle enabled women to basically get out of the house where they weren't allowed to drive and they didn't have any way to get around and now they could go and actually engage in business. And so it could be that the acceptance of women in the workplace was actually really hastened by the invention of the bicycle, which was Susan B. Anthony's uh, case that she made for it. Sure. I think we're we're really in agreement on the fact that uh, technological advances can be extremely important in making moral changes possible. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, then let me get down to, I'd say, let's say a controversial thing that you and I were talking about a little bit before we started recording. Uh, If you had a certain amount of money, let's say you had $100,000 and you had to decide what to do with it. And you and I were talking about whether or not it would be good, let's say, to advance some type of a technological innovation to help animals. Or would you think donating it to a charity that's working to get animals better living conditions, or maybe to a charity that's working to advance technological innovation like the Good Food Institute or something? Now, of course, I know you're going to say all of these are worthy, but if you had $100,000, you could only expend that much. What would Peter Singer do with it? Yeah, that's actually uh, not not a hypothetical situation. That's an actual situation that I I face pretty much every year when I make my donations. Um, And it is a very difficult decision. Um, So I donate to all three of those areas that you mentioned. That is, I donate to organizations recommended as highly effective by The Life You Can Save. Um, People can go to thelifeyoucansave.org and they can find the organizations that are independently 
audited and verified as being highly effective in, in helping people in extreme poverty and saving lives in restoring sight for people who are blind in helping people to start small businesses to work their way out of poverty, all of these kinds of things. Um, I also give to uh, animal charities like the Humane League um, and I charity, again, people can look for charities recommended by animal charity evaluators to see independently evaluated charities that, uh, that do good. And uh, the Good Food Institute, which you mentioned, which is working to bring about, facilitate uh, technological changes and alternatives to the use of animals for food, um, is one of animal charity evaluators' recommended top charities, and it is one that I donate to. So uh, I'm doing all three, but of course you could push the question a little bit harder and say, well, if it all had to go to one, which one would it go to, right? <laughs> yes. And that, I, w- I would find that very tough to answer, I have to say. Um, I'll, I'll let you off the hook since if you're giving away six figures already, you know, so there's a, there's a moral license that you have there to hedge, hedge the bet a bit. But I, I will push the question a little bit harder in a different way then and ask you, um, you know, you uh, tweeted recently about how you were so impressed by the company Eat Just in China, I worked with a major fast food company there to replace all of the egg sandwiches on its menu with their plant-based just egg, uh, with their um, egg scramble there. And how this was, in your words, the largest substitution at a restaurant of a factory farm product with a plant-based product ever. And it, it's hard to imagine you know, something realistic occurring that would reduce more suffering than taking battery cage eggs off of a fast food company's menu and replacing them entirely with plant-based eggs. So in that particular case, you know, if that is a potential outcome, in addition to donating to charity, what is your view then on investing in startups that could achieve those type of outcomes? Uh, that's fine, but you you need to know what the odds are that the startup will will actually succeed. Um, <laughs> Not high if you um, look at just the statistics, just the statistics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I I, I have a. a I was invited to be a kind of founding uh, investor in uh, a company called Gourmet in, in France. I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah, with them. Yeah, and, they do they do cultivated foie gras. That's right. Um, and and uh, you know, so I, I have a very modest investment in 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 that um, because it did seem to me that this foie gras is is a particularly cruel area of production, of course, um, and it's also a very expensive product. So the the issue that we just touched on briefly before about um, alternatives having to compete in price, which um, you know is quite difficult if you're trying to compete with with chicken or or burgers, which are really quite inexpensive, um, but competing with foie gras seems to me to be uh, more plausible on price, so I thought that was worth a little punt. But, but you know, you're you're much more the expert on that, right? How how do we know if somebody says come and invest in the startup? How do we know how likely it is to actually be one of these, uh, you know, like like just that is succeeding in in replacing animal products? Yeah, it's so hard to say, especially because the mortality rate for these startups is very high, especially the infant mortality rate of them. And so, uh, you know, you look at a company like Just that, you know, it's been in existence for um, about a decade now, and they've raised about $300 million. Uh, they And, you know, now, of course, they've done a lot more than just this one thing in China, and hopefully they'll do a lot more uh, in the future. But it's hard to know not only what you know, which jockey to bet on, so to speak, to use an animal unfriendly expression. Um, but you know, which, you know, um, so it's, it's hard to know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what, 
you know, venture capitalists do is they essentially uh, try to pick what are the most promising ones. And then there's a whole host of these investors who are animal motivated, who are trying to seed the space with funding. Now, of course, they want to return on their investment, but I think they're also pretty high minded in that knowing that a lot of that money would be going to philanthropy anyway. So they're, you know, maybe have a, a little bit different of a point of view when they're investing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm one of the people who thinks that um, it's a good idea to seed companies with with money. Now, because of the success of Beyond Meat, there's a lot more capital coming into the space. And so I, I, do, I, I do find it pretty compelling um, that you know, if you look at a company like Just that's raised a few hundred million dollars and you look at Impossible Foods, which has raised half a billion dollars, um, you know, it, these are types of dollars that the, you know, nonprofit organizations just aren't going to have access to. And so the question is, you know, what will happen if you don't invest? So I think the more money that comes in from conventional investors uh, makes it less compelling for philanthropists to put their money in that type of a way just because of the how, how much money there is in the space. Right. Yes. That's. Yeah. I have that feeling too. That that if if we're talking about people putting in tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, then um, the amount that I could put in may not be making any difference. Whereas it may be making a small difference if I donated to the Humane League and their campaigns, let's say, to uh, get supermarket chains or other food chains to s- stop serving some of the worst factory farmed products, or to you know get their eggs from cage free hens. Um, maybe I'm doing a small amount of good there, uh, which I wouldn't be doing elsewhere. Yeah, it's totally possible. I think the 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 counterexample to that would be an early stage startup that might not have access to those tens of millions of dollars and needs somebody to help them get off the ground. That might be a a more compelling case where you know fifty thousand dollars could really make or break them at that point. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, uh, sadly, I, I am, uh, not in the position of giving away a hundred thousand dollars a year, but I, I hope one day to be. And in that point, I'll have to consult with you and, and figure out what to do here. But, um, let me ask you then, Peter, you know, we're talking about like some of your, I would say more mainstream points of views here in terms of, you know, uh, being an altruist, donating money. Now, of course, it's not mainstream to suggest giving away 20% of your income, but it's still something that most people would say is is laudable. But um, you've taken a lot of positions on a lot of hot button issues. And I'm wondering, after you know a half a century here of philosophizing on all types of hot button issues, is there anything that you look back on now and think, ah, you know, I don't think I was right about that and I've changed my mind about it now? I've changed my mind on, on some... Um underlying philosophical issues, um, such as, well, a very significant one is, I guess, I've, I've changed my mind over, over this, you know, going back this 50-year period that we were talking about, uh, that I've been a vegetarian and that has also coincided with essentially me moving from being a graduate student in philosophy to being a professor. Um, I've changed my mind on the objectivity of ethics and the basis for that. That's a pretty fundamental question in ethics, but but it's not something where I can say, you know, well, I... I advocated doing X and now I think it would be wrong to do X and we should instead do Y. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's something something more basic than that. Uh, and there's a couple of other things, you know, in, in that same area like that yeah. that I've changed that. But I, I'm, I'd be struggling to say what did I advocate as in terms, in practical terms that I now wish I hadn't or that I now think would be wrong. Mm. Are there any things that you think that you were right about, but you think uh, maybe it wasn't effective to talk about them? Or do you think that, you know, it was that, you know, just seeking the truth on everything is is the right thing to do no matter what? 
So the example that would, you know, makes me think about maybe it would have been better not to talk about it was my views about uh, suggesting that parents should be able to choose euthanasia for their severely disabled newborn infants. Um, and I still hold that view. I haven't changed it, but um, you know, that's probably the, the most controversial view that I've held in terms of arousing the most opposition, leading uh, me in some cases to be blocked from speaking in Germany in the 1990s, for example. And occasionally I still get protests uh, about that. And you know, sometimes I think, well, would I have been able to have more influence on areas like uh, the tr better treatment of animals or um, assisting people in extreme poverty? If I hadn't written about that, um, but you know, you can't you can't go back and and run the experiment again. So we don't really know. Um, I think I don't really know the answer to that. Certainly, it, it brought me a lot of hostility. But <laughs> yeah, you were <laughs> you were uh, you were one of the examples of cancel culture before anybody was calling it cancel culture. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's true. Um, and it did make me actually a strong advocate for. Uh, freedom of thought and discussion, um, and and so it's had it's had that impact, and maybe that's a good impact. I, together with a couple of colleagues, I've now uh, I'm now founding a journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which is intended to promote freedom of thought and discussion and allow people to publish things that are controversial, um, both in the sense that they'll be supported by the journal. The journal won't yield to outcries and pressure to retract articles that have been accepted by peer review, but also in that we're allowing people to publish uh, anonymously or under pseudonym if they're worried about being harassed or they're worried about their controversial ideas uh, hindering their academic career if they're academics. So, um, you know, that's I, th I think that that's a, a helpful thing and um, it's going to be an open access journal so anybody will be able to read it. We're hoping to publish the first issue in mid-April, um, so people might like to go to the Journal of Controversial Ideas uh, and, and have a look at what's going on and, and perhaps support this effort to make sure that uh, ideas can get out there, that despite efforts to cancel people um, or to threaten them, um, there is still a place where controversial ideas can be published. Sounds fun. Uh, I will certainly be one of those readers and uh, I can't wait. So uh, in terms of controversial views then, you know, one of your uh, most famous quotes is about how it's really easy for us to criticize our grandparents' generation for their biases and their moral failings. And it's, that a, it's a lot harder for us to see our own moral failures. And obviously, uh, the treatment of animals is one of them that you have, and, and others have persuasively, in my view, argued that future generations are going to be repulsed by what we did to animals. When they learn how we treated animals, when they pick up a copy of Animal Liberation and they read it and they're going to think, how could anyone have ever allowed these types of cruelties to occur? Independent of animals, though, are there other things that you think that we're doing today that future generations are going to find revolting, morally speaking? Like, do you think, aside from animals, what else do you predict 50 years from now, people are going to look back and say, geez, that was barbaric? Well, I think the fact that uh there are people dying from poverty-related causes, um, including you know ones that I've mentioned, um, like malaria, like uh, diarrhea from having poor sanitation, uh, like malnutrition, 
Uh, there are people going blind from not getting enough vitamin A or not being treated for trachoma, an easily preventable cause of blindness. Um, that that is happening in a world in which there are more than a billion people living in at a level of affluence that simply didn't exist a uh, hundred or so years ago or existed only on a tiny, tiny scale. Um, I think people will look back on that and say, well, you know, why didn't they help them? Um, you know, they knew about it. It's not as if it was like, you know, in an era when people living in Europe or the United States had no idea what was going on in, in other parts of the world, nor is it an era when they lacked the ability to to travel and to, and to do things to assist them. Um, and yet, uh, they didn't, and and we're not, or we're we're not doing it on a sufficiently adequate scale. Uh, so I think that may well be something that people look back on and say, you know, why did they live in a world that was so unfair, um, where the country that you were born in had such a difference, made such a difference to your prospects of living a, a long and healthy life? Uh, that's that's I think something people will puzzle about in future future generations. Yeah, certainly uh, troubling to puzzle about it even now, just listening to you talk about it. So, uh, you know, you've talked though, Peter, about even in, in our conversation right now about the numbers of animals who are enduring suffering that is just so extreme. It's so unmitigated. It's just tens of billions, if not trillions of animals. So uh, far greater than the number of human beings even alive, whether in affluence or in poverty, um, at any given point. And so I'm wondering how you weigh all of that astronomical quantity of suffering that animals are enduring when you think about where to spend your resources, whether donating or your time or your writings. Like, how do you weigh? Obviously, the universe of animal suffering is unparalleled by anything. And so what do you think about when, of course, human suffering is 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 horrible and we want to alleviate it, but when you weigh those, where do you come out on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very likely that what we're doing to animals is causing more suffering than anything else that's that's happening on the planet. Um, it's it's not when I say it's very likely. I, you know, the difficulty here is comparing the, the sufferings of different beings. Um, I had once a student at Princeton who uh, wrote a thesis on that, but. In the end, I, I couldn't say that he cracked the problem. He said some interesting things about it. It was a very good thesis. But uh, we can't really put ourselves inside the mind of a, of a cow or a chicken or, or a fish. Um, and so it's not easy to say, uh, you know, you think of a, think of a, a shed raising 20,000 chickens, uh, extremely crowded indoors, um, uh, Certainly, they're they're stressed in in a whole lot of ways. Um, they're bred to grow extremely fast, so that uh, the experts who look at it say that they're actually in in pain for the last two weeks because their bodies have grown so fast that their leg bones don't really support it. And they've compared it to somebody uh, who's forced to stand all day on their feet, although they've got painful arthritis in their legs. Um, so, you know, yes, you know, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's just as bad for a chicken as it is for a, a human there. But then maybe the human has a different awareness of what's going on and thinks about it in different ways, feels the unfairness of it more. Um, it's, it's not easy to make those comparisons. Um, I think you know, certainly we, we far too readily dismiss the suffering of animals and we say, oh, human suffering is what really matters. I don't think we have any basis for saying that 
just being a member of the species Homo sapiens makes your suffering worse or more significant. But it's it's possible, you know, the, the cognitive capacities that most humans have and that most non-human animals don't have is relevant to that question. Um, it it is relevant. Difficult. I agree it's difficult, and I do agree that that cognitive difference is relevant. It's just the numbers are, you know, exponential in their difference. Um, yeah, and yeah. that's actually what, what, what my student sort of actually came out, ended up saying. He, he looked at the numbers and he said, well, you would have to say that the suffering of a human being like this is uh, hundreds of times worse than the suffering of, of an animal. Um, and there doesn't seem much basis for saying that. So therefore, he did conclude that the suffering of animals in factory farms in particular he was looking at is worse than you know a whole range of things that we otherwise normally regard as terrible things that are being done to people. And they are terrible, but, but because the numbers are smaller, there is still, I think, plausibly less suffering. Yeah, I, I think that seems plausible, um, but it is hard to tell, but I understand where your student's coming from there. Um, all right, Peter, I want to ask you a couple rapid fire questions that some listeners of the show who I queried wanted to know of you. So I'm going to ask you real quick. These first one uh, comes from two very important listeners. Uh, they listen to every episode because they are uh, genetically related to me, each by 50% of their genes, aka my parents. So uh, they, uh, they are vegetarians, except they use what they call the Peter Singer principle, and they still eat oysters and clams. What do you have to say to them? Are they still in the green on eating oysters and clams because there's no real evidence that they're sentient, or should they reconsider their ways? No, I think they're okay. Um, I, I think this... I haven't changed my views on that. I still okay. don't think there's real evidence that uh, bivalves specifically, oysters, mm -hmm. clams, mussels, scallops, um, are sentient beings. Okay. Uh, question number two. If somebody were considering raising a child and they had their choice between procreating or adopting, do you think one is preferable? Well, um, there's... Yeah, if, if, they're, if they're happy to adopt and then they feel that there's... No problem in, in loving an adopted child um, as their own, uh, and um, you know there are there are children in need of adoption because I do think we need to look somewhat critically at some of the uh, overseas in, intercountry adoption facilities. That um, are these bona fide orphans, or are they children who've been solicited by agencies from parents? Um, to be adopted, uh, and what are the consequences of that? So, um, but but if you have a if you have a, a undoubtedly needy child, um, uh, then I think uh, adoption is is preferable if if you feel that you're willing and able to do it. Okay, um, humans colonizing other planets, good or bad idea? A good idea, I think, if we can do it, um, because it does provide a kind of a backup if. We destroy this planet. Uh, you know, if we have some catastrophe, uh, well, it could be just a, a it could be a pandemic, which also actually could come out of factory farms too. They're being described as an ideal breeding place for new viruses, um, or it could be bioterrorism. Or it could be still nuclear war is still possible. So, if we do, then I think it would be a good thing if our species continues and if it exists on another planet um, in a self-sustaining way on another planet. Uh, that would be a backup. Let me ask a follow-up question to that then. Have we proven our ability to be um, worthy of populating another planet after what we've done on this planet? 
you know, we have potential for good and bad, and and what happens on this planet may turn out to be good and may turn out to be bad. We've um, done a lot of bad things so far, but um, I suppose I'm I'm an optimist uh, in the general trend of thinking that the longer we survive, the more we will be able to um, improve conditions for humans and for other animals, and that. Uh, you know, as you were talking about, our technology will enable us to do without exploiting animals in the way that we have been. Um, and so I think in the long run, if we survive as a species, we will be producing uh, a, a beings who are, are worthy of continuing to live. All right. All right. Well, you heard it here. Peter Singer, uh, pro-human. The the man who often gets derided as a misanthrope is actually pro-human colonization of other planets because he believes in humanity. So, all right, Peter, I ask you. Let me just say, I'm assuming that these other planets don't have other sentient beings on them at the moment, you know, talking about planets in our solar system. As far as we know, I mean, if we're talking about colonizing a planet that already has flourishing intelligent life on it, um, no, Uh, we've been there before too. Interesting. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I do presume that uh, at least um, planets like Mars probably don't have any sentient life on them. I, I presume that, although who, who knows? Um, one listener of our show, Brian, is actually uh, at NASA and is playing a big role in looking for life on Mars right now. And he thinks there might be microbes, but probably not anything more if there, if there were. So we'll see. Um, but I, I don't think it's that outrageous to think that... Um, certain moons like Enceladus or um, Europa might actually contain sentient life in their, in their liquid oceans. So they, they do have liquid water oceans right now. Um, so I'd be a little bit more nervous about going there myself. Okay. <laughs> All, I'll right. Go along with that. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, so Peter, you know, a lot of folks who listen to the show, they're really interested in business, especially startups that are doing things to make the world a better place. Are there any companies that you wish existed that don't yet exist? So you are invested in a foie gras alternative company. Are there other companies out there that you think, ah, the world would be a better place if somebody could just crack this nut? Oh, um, well, how about fusion energy for a start? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but cool. I, I know Princeton has a has a lab that's that's working in that and has been for some years and gets uh, is well government funded and it it hasn't cracked it. So I'm not about to invest in a startup that's uh, ambitious of doing that. <laughs> I think Bill Gates has. I think he he had a little bit more expendable income than you, but um, <laughs> just <for sure>. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I'm pretty sure he he has invested in in uh, what would be like next gen nuclear uh, energy. Cool. What other ideas, or if any? Any other that, that you would hope would come into existence, Peter? Uh, well, I don't know that anything else is coming to me right off off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I'm sure, sure there's a lot of good things. Yeah. Um, think of. I'm sure there are too. You can go back and listen to some past episodes of this podcast and you'll hear some really cool ideas. So, all right. In addition, Peter, to the 40 plus books that you have written, are there any other books that you think that you would recommend to people who are interested in either leading a more ethical life, who might be interested in using entrepreneurship um, to do good in the world? Are there any things that you would say, hey, check this out? Oh, right. Um... So, I think another interesting book about about ethics, uh, written by a professor of psychology, but one who actually first got a PhD in in philosophy uh, at Princeton, who I uh, worked with, is uh, Joshua Green's book Moral Tribes. Um, I think it's got an interesting take on on ethics and morality. Um, 
Other books we've talked about, Stephen Pinker's uh, Better Angels of Our Nature. It's come under come up for a certain amount of flack about some of the claims, but I still think it's a really interesting and generally optimistic take on our species and where we're going. Um, hmm. Uh, well, I, I too found so, moral, I too found moral tribes to be quite compelling. Yeah, good. And let me just mention, um, I don't, again, don't agree with everything, but Toby Ord's book, Precipice, which is about existential risk, about um, the risk of us uh, become, becoming extinct um, and various reasons why that would be a bad thing and some of the things that we can do about it um, is also definitely worth reading. Okay, cool. Uh, that's great, Peter. Well, I do recommend reading many of your books to listeners, especially um, not only the most popular ones, but one of the books that had the biggest impact on me was the um, was your book, How Are We to Live? Ethics in an Age of Self-Interest. And that had a, a very compelling uh, impact on me and what I decided to do with my life and with my career. And so I will highly plug that book in addition to your other books that we have uh, talked about here. Thanks very much, Paul. That probably also is due for a, a revised edition at some point, but uh, I'm doing animal liberation first. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, Peter, you've led a very impactful life. Um, if you, you know, you're often described as the most influential living philosopher, I think after you pass away, many will just change that to say one of the most influential philosophers. Um, although you have had uh, the benefit of coming in, uh, of having an, an era of mass media and able to get your word out. And it's been very influential to a lot of people. And like I said, hopefully, you know, you have an, another couple decades left in you of uh, doing good in the world. But whenever that time comes that you do pass on, there will be a lot of obituaries written about you, be a lot of people giving eulogies for you. What do you hope they'll say? Like, if you had to boil down what well, you... Well, firstly, let, let me just say, I, I hope they won't say that I've passed on because I won't be passing on to anywhere. I'll just be dead. I hope they'll say that I... <laughs> they'll say, um, Peter, Peter Singer is now decomposing, and then they'll say something else. What's the other thing they're going to say? What's the other thing you hope they'll um, say? Okay, so I hope they'll say that I, um, I did have an impact, a positive impact on the world, um, and that I... I hope they'll say that um, I've encouraged many people, as like you, Paul, um, you're a shining example, but um, there are certainly other, many others, I hope, who I've influenced in a positive direction to uh, try to think, think hard about how we can do the most good, how we can reduce suffering the most. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope that's what I'll be remembered for. That's great. Well, I, I can surely um, attest that you've had a, a huge impact on my life. I hope that you have an impact on the lives of people who will learn about your work from listening to this interview. And I hope that those obituaries are not written for a long time because there still is a lot more work to do. And I think you're going to have to do a lot to prove humanity worthy of our continued uh, exploration of other planets here before uh, we meet that test to uh, to deserve it. So I hope that you stick around for a long time, Peter. I'm grateful to everything that you've done and continue to do to make the world a better place. Thanks a lot, Paul. Been good to talk to you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good. 